Hello, everybody. Uh, this is um, Charlie. This is May 2nd. 11 days shy of my 70th birthday, not that I'm counting. Just first thing that occurred to me. And, um, and it's uh, 6 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, and this is a, a Zoom session, which means that it will be posted afterwards in a day or two on my website as a mm, podcast uh, audio so people could just listen to something like this so they don't have to look at it all the time when they're driving or whatever. And I think we're also going to be posting them as Zoom sessions, but not with you guys' uh, pictures on it, just with me on it, um, so that I don't have to keep getting permission to uh, be able to have you. So if people want to watch it, they can watch it. After the first five minutes, it's just me. Um, okay, so let me tell you what we're doing. Um, and I'm getting used to this system because right now it just says on, I hope you're all hearing me, but right now it, it says Galaxy S8 on it. It doesn't say me, so my name changed. Um, could, any, could anyone nod? There's Beth and Carolyn. Could you guys nod if you're hearing me? Yes. Oh, you are? Okay, good. Good. All right. All right. And I see a chat thing. Okay, and, and here's the plan for today, is for me to talk something like 40 minutes, though I'm never a good estimator of time in these things once I get talking. Um, but the plan is to talk for about 40 minutes to make the points I want to make, during which you guys can bring up questions about what I'm talking about, or really anything else, uh, DBT related probably, or skills related, um, you can bring up things and then I will look at the chat where you have been able to write down your questions. And then I can address them in the last 20 minutes and we can open up microphones and have um, a back and forth when, when that's appropriate. Um, so this is, a, this is the beginning of a new venture today, really. Um, I've decided, as you probably know, or you wouldn't be on here, um, to uh, do something I've wanted to do for a long time. Uh, when, you, when you're a skills training teacher in DBT, you always have to, comparatively, it's very common to have to rush through the skills because um, there's so many and they're so valuable that you want to cover a lot. But um, I've always had my suspicions that it takes more than that for someone to really get down into the skill, actually buy it, actually see how it works for them, and, uh, and, and then go from there and try to use it. So I'm going to be going skill by skill. In fact, this could have been called skill by skill as a title, um, and, 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 and go through the DBT skills really over the next year probably, and try to go in depth in skills. And just to make it clear, this is not just for people. I've gotten some emails about this. So this is not for people who are DBT therapists only or DBT patients only or DBT family members only. This is for anybody. So if you know people that you think could use learning the skills in this format, I mean, feel free to refer them. I mean, lots of people can get on this and, and they'll be on the website also. Just people can download them or listen to them. So that's, the, that's really the point. Now, here's, the, here's my anxieties or uh, concerns about today. Um, you know, even more than usually with my podcasts, I have um, written some things out because I really want to make some very clear teaching points, but also I want to make it kind of 
make sense to people. So I've really worked at that. And that means it's more scripted, it's more written out. And that's not usually my style. I usually just have some bullet points or an outline and I talk. So um, I don't know how that's going to go. And the other thing I'm always anxious about when I'm being viewed in something like this is eye contact is so weird. I, I don't know if you've had done this with different things like this is that, you know, I'm look, when I look at the screen, and if I see any of you, I'm actually not looking where the camera is. So I'm actually looking like I don't make very good eye contact. And of course, if I look at the papers, I'm not making good eye contact. So I want you all to bear with me, and, and actually I'll figure this out, just given, given some time. All right. Um, my other anxiety about today is I'm going to talk a lot about mindfulness today. And mindfulness is such a, um, it's such a ubiquitous subject in our world today. I mean, everybody uses the word mindfulness. So it's no longer quite what it was when it was kind of just entering the scene, coming from Eastern spiritual practices 30 years ago, and then being talked about by Marshall Linehan and a few other people. It's now everywhere. You know, you're mindful of what's in your refrigerator. You know, you're mindful of what the weather's like today. You're mindful of what the traffic's like. I mean, even, even people on TV like that, that are talking about those things and marketing things always use the word mindful. So it's kind of like diluted the term. And I want to undilute it today because I think that mindfulness is, uh, it really is what Thich Nhat Hanh called it. It is a miracle. And I really experience it that more now than I ever did. And I want to convey my experience to you. Because uh, I want really for people not to see, oh, what does DBT think about mindfulness? I want to start with what kind of uh, misery people live in, what kind of unpredictable, anxiety-ridden lives, what kind of catastrophes people have, what kind of difficulties people have, and how is it that mindfulness is a solution to something? Like, what is mindfulness a solution to? What is the question to which mindfulness is the answer? And I'm going to spend time today on that topic more than teaching you mindfulness skills. But just to forecast how this is going to go over the next three podcast, three Zoom cast, I don't know what you call Zoom, I'm going to call them Zoom casts for the time being. Um, I'm going to be starting with uh, what, what is it, what's the life problem for which mindfulness is an answer? And, and in doing so, I'm going to weave in um, the what is it? What are the qualities that mindfulness brings to your life that help you with those problems? And then, probably not today, but maybe by the end of today, I'm going to start getting into, okay, what exactly, except when you practice it, what exactly is mindfulness? Because mindfulness is a lot of things. It's a concept. It's a philosophy. It's a paradigm. Um, it's a practice that people do. It's a practice within spiritual practices. It's a practice outside of spiritual practices. It's for stress relief. It's for lots of things. And, and it can be done in, in 30 seconds, and it can be done for a retreat three months long. So what exactly are we talking about that an ordinary person can use? You know, that it, it doesn't require like, oh my God, I'm in trouble. I better go sit in a retreat for three weeks. It's not like that. My main practices of mindfulness myself and my most valuable ones, I have to say, even though I sit pretty regularly and do mindfulness practices, but I would say the most valuable ones I have is what I used this afternoon when I was making my way from my office in Northampton to my house where I'm sitting now. And it was things like on the road when I was at a stoplight, just noticing my breathing in and my breathing out. 
just noticing how the spring is happening in some details. Just noticing, you know, an ache or a pain that I have, just sitting in my office between patients and just sitting for five minutes and doing nothing else and just letting my mind go. These are moments of mindfulness. And, you know, I sort of had this metaphor that came to mind today that mind, mindfulness practiced in that way, the itty bitty versions of mindfulness that I think are accumulatively incredibly helpful, but not instantly, but sometimes right away they help some. But they're most helpful if you have itty bitty mindfulness over time. Um, it's a little bit it reminded me of the first uh, video game, Pac-Man. And because every time you do a itty bitty mindfulness, it's sort of like Pac-Man just ate another thing, you know, in the little screens where Pac-Man's going around and, and got another one and got another and got another. And that generates energy in Pac-Man and it generates power in Pac-Man. So it's sort of like, I think it generates mindfulness energy and then it fades and then you do it again and it comes back and then it fades and then you do it again. And it comes back. I think if you do that a lot, my experience is something like this, and I'm going to be a little overly dramatic, but not too far overly. It's just that I don't know that everybody would experience it this way. I've always had a little bit of an odd nervous system. Um, when I do much of this kind of thing, I start to feel that my experience of the world and my experience of my inner world, my inner uh, experiences, perceptions inside my body, my five sense organs, what I see in the world, what I experience in the world, I sort of feel like all of that gets filtered through a kind of a crystalline film around me, around my body, around my mind, around myself. It's kind of like that allows for a delay in how I experience things, like so that my reactivity goes down because I experience something and it stays a little longer I think that that is the product of mindfulness, even little itty bitty mindfulnesses, is that you start to build this kind of resilient outer layer between you and yourself, between you and the world that allows you to almost have a, a mini, mini tape delay of how you experience the world. So it slows down your reactivity and it's helped by just noticing your breathing again and again. And you can, you can build this film by your Pac-Man behavior, mindfulness Pac-Man, my Pac-Man mindfulness of, of just sort of like, okay, I'm just going to stop and do mindfulness while I'm walking up my stairs. I'm going to do mindfulness, you know, before I go to bed. And I, and I don't mean sitting in a, in a chair and closing your eyes. I mean, you stand there in front of your bed and you just take an extra moment. I mean, I have these images from retreats, but I'm not talking about going to retreats, but the retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh, and I've probably mentioned this before on, the, on a podcast, I will never forget when I watched him open and close a door because you could tell with him that that's all he was doing, literally all he was doing in his mind, in his body, all he was doing was opening a doorknob, opening the door and then closing. It didn't look weird. You just noticed, oh, there's an extra level of him being present while he does that. And that modeled for me. I mean, the whole retreat, that made the whole retreat worth it to watch him do that one thing, actually, because it's been a model for a lot of itty bitty mindfulnesses for me. So I just wanna say, there, it's really valuable stuff, but it's really hard to convey why. And a lot of people don't uh, get that, uh, that way of putting it. So I'm just starting there. So now, let me, I'm gonna look to my, uh, note some when I go now. Um, 
Yeah, let me just see. I'll probably look down sometimes and then look back up uh, to talk about this. You know, there are some people for whom this might be the first Zoom cast you've seen and the first time you've seen me, because the word is getting around about this might be helpful for people, including people who aren't in treatment at all. And so I just want to say very, very briefly, so that it doesn't take away too much from the time of all of you who have DBT savvy, which is probably most people who are on right now. Um, DBT is a treatment started in the 1970s by Marsha Linehan in order to treat people who are who are harming themselves repeatedly or who are trying to kill themselves. And she found over time that the core problem, the core problem was not actually harming themselves and trying to kill themselves. That was the solution to the core problem. The core problem was that their emotions were out of control and their emotions were very painful. And, and they had little resiliency when it came to emotions and high reactivity. And so she developed a treatment with a hundred plus skills and a lot of strategies for therapists and, and a lot of instructions of what to do to treat that problem. And it turns out after all the research that's been done, the core of the treatment of the core of the problem is the skills. And that's what highlights this, that the skills are so important to get. And then it turns out that they don't just help people who are suicidal, who are harming themselves. They help people who have substance abuse problems and addictions. Uh, they help people who have eating disorders. They help people who have violence. They help people with domestic abuse on both sides of the abuse. Um, they help people, they help children now. They help teenagers who are just out of control. Um, so, it, it, and it turns out they help everybody. So that's the idea of, of doing this uh, Zoomcast for, for everybody is to put a free resource out there for people to think about using some of these things. So I just wanted to say that I'm not going to say that every week, but I wanted to get that, get that out there. And if you want to learn more about the skills with that, there's just this incredibly fabulous uh, manual, uh, DBT skills training manual. And then there's a, an accompanying uh, book that has all these handouts that go with this manual. And, and it can be really useful, even if you don't know much about it. Actually, it's very suggestive stuff. So it depends how much you like those kind of handouts and diagrams and manuals. That manual is really for therapists more than for, uh, uh, you know, people, the lay public. So, okay. Okay. All right, mindfulness. I've said a little about it already, but now, um, and, and those of you who know me from workshops and things like that, it will not surprise you to know that somewhere along here, there's a song coming because I wrote a song for this tonight. Um, and uh, I don't think it's personally very good, but um, I never do. Um, so you can just consider that a judgment that's not uh, accurate. <laughs> you never know what's happening. All right, so. Where do I want to go with this? Let's get clear about mindfulness as a term. Um, you know, it's a set of concepts that promotes awareness in life and acceptance in life, which sound like just highfalutin concepts. But actually, uh, when it gets down to the details, you'll hear that it really pr promotes awareness of exactly what's going on in this moment, which is actually quite simple. We do it when we're babies. We do it when we're children. Uh, we sometimes stop doing it more as we get older, and then it requires uh, effortful practice just to get ourselves back to that. 
Um, and the DBT mindfulness skills that we will get to, not today, but this will lay the groundwork for them. These are, uh, there's three sets of DBT mindfulness skills, and they uh, lay the foundation for the entire 100 plus skills training package. So you really want to know these. Some people find these, oh, these are airy-fairy, these are like concepts, these are practices they do in Buddhism or something. Let me tell you, just to be clear about that, it's so bullshit. That is so bullshit. I mean, these things are actually practical things you do that change yourself in 30 seconds. You know, and there, there's lots of things you can do that change yourself in 30 seconds, but these always change you towards the better. That's the weird thing about them. Um, so I want to get across uh, that what mindfulness is as a way of living, uh, especially when confronted with adversity. This is still the Zoomcast called To Hell is to hell and back, and it's about dealing with adversity. So back to the miracle, and then I'm taking off with this. The miracle of mindfulness by Thich Nhat Hanh, that mindfulness is invisible. It can be quick. It's a maneuver of the mind and the body, and it can change you in a moment. And if you do it again and again, I was talking about it, it can have a cumulative effect. And what is the miracle? The miracle is that in this very moment, Right now, right here, if we direct our attention to the details of what is emerging in our minds, I mean, think of yourself as like you're, you're in a ship and you're looking out a porthole or something, and you're just, things are emerging all the time. You're always seeing another thing is coming up. And so, or you're at an aquarium, and no matter what time it is, and you've just been watching the same fish, it's different now. Or when you're turning a kaleidoscope, it is changing every time you turn it. Well, it turns out that's the way reality is. It's just always changing. And so you, it, it, mindfulness is when you tune into the current exact now version of the kaleidoscope, version of the porthole or version of the aquarium. It is like what is going on right now. And that aquarium might be the aquarium of your own thoughts the aquarium of your emotions flying around could be the aquarium of who's around you, what's around you, or the sensations that are coming in. So I would say, for instance, right now, you all could do it wherever you are by just taking a breath in and noticing everything you notice about that breath. Notice as it passes through your nose or, or your mouth or your throat, and notice as it enters and moves your chest and, and hopefully your, your abdomen. Just do it, an in-breath and just do that. Tune into that. And then do it with your out breath. That's a profound practice, right? It, it, it's where you bring your perception in absolute contact with reality for a moment. The breath being your reality. It is, these kind of realities are really the only thing that are not fake news. These, these are real news. These are real news coming into your nervous system. So if you breathe in and breathe out like that, and you just notice that, that's what I mean by Pac-Man mindfulness. I mean, you, you just did it. Um, if you do that five times in the next five hours, you're you keep sticking your mind to reality again and again, even for brief times, until your mind starts to get more accustomed to sticking itself to reality. Um, and so... You can say to yourself, you know, I'm breathing in, and you can say in, and it, it's sort of label, it's sort of 
we'll get back to the DBT skills later. One of them is called observe, which is to be to notice, and one's going to be called describe, which is really to be putting a, a label on that connection between your perception and, the re and, and reality. Um, so mindfulness is a supposedly a simple concept. It's deceptively simple, but it's just to be witness to what is actually happening. And sometimes it's to be witness to it from the outside of what's happening, and that's observing. And sometimes it's actually entering into what's happening and being part of what's happening, which is participate. And there's very little difference in, in its most basic form between what we're going to call observing some experience or phenomenon and participate in, participating in. They're almost the same thing. One is just inside it, and the other is just a tiny bit outside it. Okay? And then you notice if you do many of these, either mini mindfulnesses or, or, or longer-term mindfulness practices of any kind, you start to notice certain things, which is, uh, it is just true. And it, again, this is said so many times now in our culture that it sounds trite, but everything is changing every, every second. Everything keeps changing. And if you just start paying attention to the breath, or if you just follow the total life and death of one of your emotions. I used to teach that in some DBT skills groups. I'd say, let's do the life and death of an emotion. Because emotions come into being like waves in the ocean from nowhere, or they don't come from nowhere, but they come. And then there they are for a while. And then they fade or they turn into something else. So it's just never staying the same. So when you tune in, it's always different. And if you watch for anything longer than one second, it's already changing. So why do we do this kind of practice like what that we've done uh, on and off since we're babies? So here's what I want to do. I want to focus the, re the, the most of the rest of this discussion around discomfort, about mindful. Now, that's not the only way to use mindfulness, but we're talking about to hell and back. So we're talking about hell. So we're talking about misery. We're talking about discomfort. We're talking about suffering. We're talking about pain of one kind or another. So let's talk about discomfort. You know, so this could mean physical pain. And I want anybody who's listening to this or watching this to be thinking about, yeah, what's, the, what's my misery today? Uh, and it could be minor misery or it could be catastrophic misery. But it's like everybody has some. Either just had it, is having it now, or is about to have it. So is it mental anguish? Is it worry about a family member? Is it worry about your health? Uh, is it anxiety about what's been going on, or is it grief about something that isn't resolved for you? Is it humiliation and shame because of something that you're doing? Um, it could be discomfort in a relationship that you can't solve, um, and yet it's hard to get out of, and that can be a real painful form of misery. And it could be um, uh, it could be terrible, like in the past podcasts I've had here, like the agony that comes from the loss of a young child. The agony that comes from the devastation of your home on an island that is totally destroyed by a hurricane and then is not given much support. Um, it could be uh, being diagnosed with a life-threatening illness. And it could be more routine discomfort, like changes from getting older. I talked about it in a podcast two or three podcasts ago about, you know, how getting old sucks and, and there's just all of these things that happen inevitably. Whatever your frame of mind is, I have a pretty good frame of mind about aging, but actually the best thing I've done about aging is actually I've just, start, I've just gotten more and more accepting of all the changes and then try to figure out what to do about them, but I'm not really denying them as much as I used to. Um, the inconveniences of traffic and family life and the understandable ache 
as so many of my patients have, of being alone, of being alone in the world, alone in the community. So there's all these things. I want us to use physical pain as our first actual example because it's so graphic, it's so obvious. And if you really get the idea of what mindfulness is for physical pain, you get everything. You get what it, what it is for anxiety and anguish and other things. So just if you get, you know, if you, if you can't pay attention beyond the first 30 minutes of this, uh, you'll have gotten the whole thing, you know, uh, because I'll cover this physical pain thing. So let me tell you this, when I was 30, I ran the Boston Marathon. Now I was not a runner. I was not gifted. I was not a natural runner. I shouldn't have been doing this. I was doing this because I had lofty goals in my mind of, of, what, of what I thought in the past I would do with my life, which would be to be an NBA basketball player. And so I was still running as if that might still happen. It's 30, Larry Bird didn't retire till he was 33. So I thought, well, there's a chance. Now Tom Brady in football, maybe I could have switched over to football, you know, and, but I really wasn't a football player. I wasn't much of a basketball player, but in my mind, I was amazing. And so I was running the Boston Marathon also just because like a, like a, a Zoom cast that I did a week or two ago, I talked about how ants never stop. They're relentless. I'm like an ant. And so I w I'm into self-improvement. I do these things until I'm just going to drop. You know, now I'm better at this. I'm more balanced, but it's been a lot of learning for me, painful learning. So I was in the Boston Marathon having trained and trained and trained, and I had run one marathon in order to be able to qualify. But those of you who know much about marathons, you're thinking, well, how did this non-runner qualify? Because I tried and I couldn't get in because it's hard to qualify with the times they give you. Well, I'm a doctor. So they had the American Medical Joggers Association. You had a lot more generous time allowed you to qualify because they wanted doctors in the race so that when other people keeled over, there was somebody there to do CPR. And so not that I knew that much about how to do that, but I knew something about it. So I'm running the Boston Marathon. And if you know the Boston Marathon, here's the situation. The first 13 miles, if you've trained, are fantastic. Like you go along like, oh my God, you're so trained up and you ate all these carbohydrates the last couple of days. And there you are, and they're playing Rocky before you start, or, or Chariots of Fire, and it's like this exciting, and you know, you're, you feel like you're coasting for 13 miles, and probably going too fast. And then you have the peak of the whole race from my experience, which was, at 13 miles, you get to Wellesley College. And at Wellesley College, there's all these beautiful girls, and, you know, and there you are, you're still a young man, and you're running along, and there's these beautiful girls that are, that are lined up, so you only have about three feet between these two lines. And they're handing you these cups of water and slices of oranges. And you just want to stop at that point and go to heaven. I mean, it's just like, wow, you're feeling pretty good at that point. So I got through Wellesley. I didn't stop. Actually, if you stop, you're probably immediately identified as a pathological human being. And so everybody would probably vanish at that point is my guess, except other pathological human beings. So I just kept running. Uh, I, and then what happens is you get to Newton. And when you get to Newton, Massachusetts, you're at the bottom of a series of hills that collectively are called Heartbreak Hill. And they go up and then they go up and they go up. They never come down. It's just like one little hill after another from mile number about uh, 15 point something up to about mile 21. And so there you are running along. And then you get to the real Heartbreak Hill, which is actually only 0.4 miles. And it's the end of all these hills. And that's really heartbreak hill because that's the one where all of your glycogen supplies are gone. 
And unless you're a natural marathon runner with a lot of training, you know, you hit the wall at that point. And I definitely hit the wall. So I'm running along at that point and I'm, and I'm thinking, wow, I made it. I'm 21 miles. But all the way up those hills, I started to have pain in my right groin muscle. And it just got tighter and tighter and more inflamed and more inflamed until I thought, oh my God, my right leg is going to fall off. I'm dragging my right leg along. But here's the thing. I'm running next to this guy, kind of a heavy guy who looked like he never should have been in a marathon. And he was kind of huffing and puffing and red faced and a little bit heavy. And we're going along stride for stride for miles together. This is like the closest relationship you ever have in your life that where a word is never spoken. You're stride for stride. That's all. You know that that other person's with you and you're with them. And God, if the army comes, the two of you are on the same team. I mean, to fight. And so there we are together going along. We're five miles out from the end. And I turn to this guy who doesn't know me. And I say, oh my God, I'm going to have to stop. My groin is in so much pain. And he turns to me and says, over my dead body, will you stop? You've gotten this far. Thought, whoa, who is this from my past? I mean, wow, but it really motivated me. And I said, all right, all right. So I kept dragging my right leg, trying to override my awareness of pain, trying to avoid the awareness of pain by moving my leg in awkward and distorted ways so that my running was kind of a limp. And, and trying to keep my mind focused on everything except my body. We're going along. There's one mile left. We're going to make it. He turns to me and says, I'm going to have to stop. I'm afraid I'm going to have a heart attack. And I said, oh, my God. And I turned to him and I said, over my dead body, you're going to have a heart attack. I mean, you are going to finish this race. I mean, we're, on, we're one mile away. And so we, I, we continued. And um, I don't know what happened to him <laughs> afterwards. But we got across there. Now, um, so what, did, what happened as a result of that? And why am I telling you this story? Um, because I really lost touch with the reality of my body. I was practicing the opposite of mindfulness. I was doing everything other than tuning in to what's real. I mean, unless you just say, I mean, I could have maybe finished and still tuned into what's real, but my strategy and my strategy in a lot of life, because I wanted to try to do a lot of things and I was often multitasking and I was like an ant is that I would just push through things, you know, no pain, no gain, just, you know, power through, power through, keep your mind focused. You know, I think I can, I think I can, all of that kind of stuff that basically is to say, fuck my body, forget it. It's out of my consciousness. I am going to ride through this and I'm going to take control of this situation. I mean, I'm going to think of Nike the rest of the way and just, just do it, you know. And so I had that mentality. That is the opposite of a mindfulness mentality. Unless mindfulness got you to that point and now you're doing that knowing full well that you're doing it. But for me, what was I sacrificing? Well, as you'll hear, I was sacrificing my hip. I sacrificed my hip to the point that it was never the same after that. And it had never been quite that before. Uh, I, it just got worse and worse. But that race, I'm convinced, is where I created osteoarthritis of my right hip, which I didn't go for diagnosis for years because I didn't want to hear that as I was playing a lot of basketball. So um, here, as you can imagine, if you know me or if you know DBT teachers in general, I have an acronym for, for what I'm talking about which are the qualities of not being mindful. So let me share what that is. Um, it's sort of the practice of being non-aware. 
the practice of non-acceptance, the practices of, of being illusional or delusional, so to speak, the refusal to see and accept reality. So I have a way of calling that now. So catch the uh, mnemonic in this, and then I'll, I'm going to show it to you on a PowerPoint slide because it has five, we're five letters. Uh, going off to the races, which of course is grounded for me in the marathon. Going off to the races with the word R-A-C-E-S, each one representing uh, a problem. So uh, what's R? Rejection of reality, refusal to accept reality, and restriction of awareness. So it's rejection, it's refusal, it's restriction. We all have been there. We all know people who live there. Second, A, what's A stand for? Avoidance of the cues that set off discomfort and avoidance of recognition and experience of discomfort. It's like a, a, a willful avoidance of things so that you don't experience discomfort as if you could eliminate discomfort from your life. C in races, control of the situation. So this is control of my mind, control of my body, uh, control of the overriding realities, as if by powering through, you can control things in your life. Um, e, escape from the discomfort of mind and body or from interpersonal situations. And S, suppression. Suppression of your natural responses to what's going on. So it's rejection, it's refusal, it's restriction, it's avoidance, it's control, it's escape, and it's suppression. This is the anti-mindfulness package. This is the package that sacrifices reality in the service of something else. And a huge problem is that when you reject reality, it has this tendency to rebound, to come back, usually stronger than before. Let me try this thing that I'm supposed to know how to do now here. I'm on the screen. Here's, the, here's a PowerPoint I just made this afternoon um, just to show you the five things. Reject, refuse, restrict, avoid, control, escape, and suppress. Now let me see how I get out of this. Um, here's the thing. These things keep moving around. I get out of this. Damn. Wait, I know. If I move this down, yeah, now I could get out of it. Okay. All right. So though, that's that. Now, after the marathon, I continued to play a lot of basketball and a lot of tennis and to run in my spare time and just try to power through the pain. And over time, over 10 years, I finally, it got worse and worse until I came to a hospital to give a grand round talk in New York City. And I, I got out of my car in the parking lot and I could not take one step. And the pain was so severe that I flagged somebody down who drove me over to the building. It was at Einstein actually, medical center, and uh, drove me over to the building. And then I sort of limped in to where the auditorium was and gave my talk. But I knew then, oh my God, I've gone too far. I have to see a doctor. Um, and so, I did, and I had this inflamed body part after that, and it resulted from, all, from going to the races. You know, so there's the story, but what's the point now? The point is that we all have a tendency that what I did was not that, I mean, it was extreme, but it was not that weird in that we all have a reflex to uh, move us away from pain. 
and to move us away from discomfort. And we do automatic things, and some of us take it farther than others, or it's different with different situations. But, you know, we, reflect, we reflexively turn away and, uh, because we don't want those things. It's just completely natural. And we try to cling to things being the way we want them to be. So mindfulness, in one way of thinking, is a wake-up call. In my case, when my hip froze up and the doctor interpreted the x-rays, that was my wake-up call because mindfulness didn't do it. I could have done it at any point, but I just didn't during that period of time, even though I practiced some mindfulness during that period of time, but I conveniently left out my whole body, I guess, or at least that part of my body. Um, so mindfulness teaches us to see what's been going on for a while, and it wakes us up to what's happening right now in this moment and opening ourselves up to the fine-grained nature of reality. And it's the opposite of going to the races. So what do I mean by that? Instead of rejection, refusal, and restriction, when we're mindful, we accept reality. We, it enters our five senses, our body, internal body sense, and it enters our recognition of what's really going on. You know, it's the opposite of rejection and refusal and restriction. Instead of avoidance, when we're mindful, we approach our experience, whether it's positive or negative, appealing or aversive. We don't discriminate between appealing and aversive when we practice mindfulness. They both happen, and we are open to both of them. Instead of control, we let go of control, and we keep our eyes open and see what's going on in and around us, and we let life flow through us rather than controlling it all the time. And sometimes that gets us into a very nice zone, and sometimes it doesn't. Instead of escape, we stay put. There's a mindfulness teacher, Pema Chodron, has a beautiful teaching on uh, that she, it sounds like she's talking to a dog, where she's talking to herself saying, stay, stay. And it really is because we always want to move. We always want to move toward wonderful things, away from aversive things. And she says, no, just stay, just stay. It's very gentle, but stay. It's like gentle dog training. Um, and so we stay and we remain and we don't run away from the truth of our experience. And instead of suppression, we recognize exactly how things are and, and not clinging. Instead, we allow things to be, and we also don't exaggerate. So, of course, you can imagine I have an acronym for these things, and these are getting us closer to what the actual practice of mindfulness is, because we haven't even talked about that yet, and we, we might not get to that today. Because um, this is, uh, the acronym is so, the word SOAR, S, but I, I had to misspell it in order to get the five things in that I wanted. So it's sore with two A's. That maybe I'll have to remember it. So sore is to, S is see what's happening. O is open up to the reality that's contained in this moment. A is to approach what is really going on rather than move away from it. A is allow our perceptions, our feelings, our sensations, and so on to be there, whatever they are. And R is relax, relax into the reality. Uh, of what actually is. See if I can get this back up here. Oh, no, I think I got rid of it. I got rid of it. <laughs> Wouldn't you know? Okay. Um, yeah, so I'll just say it again. See, open up, approach, allow, and relax. These are the outcomes of practicing mindfulness, and they help us a lot. Um, it goes back to something I talked about in a previous podcast, which was from my early childhood dentist, 
when he taught, when he hypnotized me for pain. And he said when I was under hypnosis, which terrified me, but it worked. Um, this is going to hurt. You're going to feel pain, but it's not going to bother you. In, in that little phrase, my, my dentist, whose name was memorably Dr. Tinkle, uh, taught me mindfulness. I mean, that was like self-hypnosis and it was mindfulness. It was like, if you, you can actually be with your pain, that's the practice of mindfulness, to be with your pain. Here's my debate now. I'm going to have a bunch of uh, chats to respond to, I think. Let me just take a look. Four. I can hear you. I can see you. Three new messages. I'm, I'm assisting chat. No, nobody asked any questions. I could be wrong about that, but I was just thinking, should I sing my song now or not? And uh, now, so I'm going to sing my song. It's always hard to start singing it because I always think, oh my God, this is going to be so stupid. Um, and, uh, and then I have things to summarize, but basically it's going over some of the same ideas and getting closer and closer to what it is actually to practice mindfulness, which we will move on to next time. So here's my song. It's to the tune, because I haven't yet started writing my own tunes except for a couple of rap songs. But it's to the tune of John Henry, when John Henry was a little baby. And it's about sort of the right theme because it was him trying to beat a steam drill. And, you know, and he wore his body out trying to beat a steam drill. So here's the song. Uh, I don't know how many of you I'm going to lose now, but probably a good percentage. <laughs> when I feel bad, when I feel bad, I go off to the races. I reject, I avoid, I control. I escape from emotions and suppress any traces of feelings that might take a toll, Lord, Lord, of feelings that might take a toll. Should I lean into pain? Should I look at what's real when real will just bring me down? Sometimes when I let myself feel how I feel, I can't get away from a frown, Lord, Lord. I can't stop my mouth from a frown. But I noticed when I come back from the races, my feelings come back twice as strong. I search for escape, but I run out of places. And relief doesn't last very long, Lord, Lord. Relief doesn't last very long. I have grown very tired of running away. Seems like I live in a cave. How can I find my way back to okay rather than keep running to my grave, Lord, Lord, running all the way to my grave? I came across a guy, he knew DBT. He offered to teach me a way to come home from the races and learn to feel free. And here's what he went on to say, Lord, Lord. And here's what he went on to say. He said, stay right where you are in your feelings. Open yourself to the now. Approach everything you've been running from. Regarding discomfort, allow, Lord, Lord. When it comes to discomfort, allow. Relax into life, whether positive, negative. Let yourself go for a ride. And when you wake up in the here and the now, you'll surely find joy is there inside, Lord, Lord. You'll surely find joy inside. I took him to heart. And where I was, I hung out with my feelings and more. I became close friends with my senses and perceptions. And mindfulness has helped me to soar, Lord, Lord. Mindfulness has helped me to soar. 
Bring me back to my home, to the moment. Bring me back to my senses again. I'm so tired of rejecting, controlling, and suppressing. I'm happy just to feel my pain, Lord, Lord. I'm actually at home in my pain. So look, to summarize, it's really to open your mind to the emergence of what's going on in this moment. And it sounds trivial and focused, but actually it just sort of makes you a, a more and more resilient person with things, things going on. The research is sort of daunting about this and convincing. Um, and we have to know that discomfort keeps coming to us. We're, we're in it, we're, we're, the fabric that we live in keeps bringing us discomfort. It just keeps coming that way. It's just going to keep coming that way. It's just not going to resolve. One thing's going to replace another. So if you can get good at pain, and what I didn't get to, what I thought I would talk some about is substance abuse and addictions and how it applies there and how you can see an addiction as the outgrowth of going to the races because they involve control. They involve escape. They involve avoidance. They involve rejection and repudiation of, of what's real. And, that, and they involve uh, suppression of things. Substance abuse is just meets every criteria for these anti-mindfulness things. And when I teach workshops on substance abuse and DBT, I always start, because I've thought a lot about this working with substance abuse people, at the opposite ends of the spectrum of how you cope with life is addictions at one end and mindfulness at the other end. They're just totally opposite each other. So one is an antidote for the other one. And there's physical pain. And then there's the use of mindfulness similarly for um, the treatment of recurrent depression. And it's a very similar idea to noticing pain early. The earlier you can notice these waves of pain, these waves of misery, these waves of discomfort, and in the role of depression, the waves of pessimistic thinking, dark thinking, uh, narrow thinking, bitter thinking. You, if you practice mindfulness every day like you're supposed to do in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, sort of the best evidence-based treatment for recurrent depression, you know, you're just alert. You're just daily alert, watching for the change of your thoughts, the entry of some dark thinking. And when, when you catch it early, that really is helpful. You, can, you almost automatically make adjustments rather than let it consolidate and consolidate until in a way you're already, first time you recognize you're really depressed, you're actually really depressed and, and it's, it's taken over your biology. So it's really hard to do stuff about it. But if you see the waves coming early, there's more you can do. That's also the idea with substance abuse. If you can see your cravings and see your urges to use substances and you, you're watching for them and you learn what's called sort of mindfulness-based relapse prevention, same exact idea. You're watching as if you're looking out in the ocean and out in the ocean you see waves emerge like when you're a surfer and you're watching for the next wave and you're really alert to waves because you're a sur surfer, but you want to be a surfer if you're a substance abuser and you're trying to get out of it, you want to catch those urges and cravings coming early. Because if you see them coming way out in the ocean, you have a better chance to be ready for them and 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 because they're going to be there. And then they get there and you're you're in the shallow end of the ocean and you feel waves are coming through you. And and if you can let them come through you without letting them carry you 
tumbling to the sand and hurting yourself by using substances, if you can really ride the waves, and that's where the concept of urge surfing came up. It didn't start with Linehan or DBT. It started with Alan Marlat and relapse prevention. It was an imagery mindfulness practice of how to ride those waves. But, but some people don't know it. It's, the metaphor is a much bigger metaphor than that. The whole idea is waves are coming, just like waves of misery are coming in your life. Waves of illness are coming. Waves of loss are coming. I hate to sound so such a bummer, but it's just reality. Waves of substance of addiction are coming and waves of depression are coming for people who are prone to depression. So if you're just sort of alert, you're looking out in the ocean, this kind of metaphor can be applied to all these different things. And you've just got to learn to be there, accept the things, watch the things, study the things, get to know those waves. Don't be freaked out by those waves. Of course they will come. You're a substance user. That doesn't mean anything terrible. It doesn't mean that you have to use substances. So the more you can disconnect those things, that becomes the outcome of practicing mindfulness in the face of waves of addiction or waves of depression or same thing with waves of anxiety and especially maybe acceptance and commitment therapy is the best version of that. Um, so I'm going to look and see if anybody's asking a question or just invite anybody to write anything in. The thing I was going to spend more time on, and I've, I've just covered it quickly, were these different, uh, how it is that misery in general in all walks of life can benefit from this kind of alertness, this kind of like, okay, here it comes. Oh yeah, this is it. As well as noticing joy and noticing wonderful things and letting yourself have those things and not end those things prematurely. So I'm gonna look again at the chat. I think that nobody's asked any real questions. Um, there's still a bunch of names here. Oh my God, people are still listening. Oh my God, so weird. Actually, I, I listened to a podcast that somebody did today. It was nice to be on the other side because um, you really don't know how you're being uh, received. So I, 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 I don't have questions here. Somebody wrote, I wasn't raising my hand. I was attempting to wave hi. Oh, good. Somebody waved hi. Hi. Thank you. Great start. Oh, good. Great start. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's important to grasp this and grasp that the role of mindfulness grows out of what's actually real in your life. It doesn't grow out of some monk from India. It grows out of actually what you need and what maybe you already do at your best. But the more disciplined you get about just knowing that it's there for you at any moment. I did it with a patient today who was having intense reactivity when he was talking about something. He was talking about his um, family. I won't go into detail so as not to reveal who it would be but to anyone. But um, he was talking about, you know, family situation that triggers memories of really mistreatment in his life. Um, and that was really... Um, you know, and he doesn't like these kind of things, these kind of interventions. But I just, I got forceful today because I just thought he absolutely needs this. I've got to get this across to him. You know, just because mindfulness is regarded as this kind of sitting still, quiet walking, quiet talking, quiet eating, that doesn't mean you have to be quiet when you try to get people to use it. You can hit them over the head with it. You know, so that's sort of what I was doing more than usual with him today. And at a certain point, he sort of looked like he sort of woke up and he said, you really think it would help me? As if I hadn't said this for a while, a good while. 
I said, I really do. It's more than it would help you. It is one of the antidotes to your problems, your reactivity. Yes, your past did happen. Yes, you deserve validation for your past. But actually, the things you're reacting to now are not your past. They're reminding of you of your past. So you're losing the distinction between past and present, which is natural. There's a meltdown that goes on in your mind. We've got to get you mindful of the difference between past and present. And then we started working on that. Now, there are a couple questions here. How do you sell that being alert would have a better outcome than not? I like your example of the tornado. Didn't you? I didn't even know I used the example of the tornado. I wrote it down in my notes today, but I didn't think I said it, but maybe I said it, of, of, a, of a tornado getting going. Maybe I've said it in a previous teaching. How do you sell that being alert would have a better outcome than not? You know, I don't sell anything. I, I, I think, um, I guess I've done this long enough to, I, I got tired of selling. Um, I, I put it out there. And I try to be convincing and I try to let it grow out of what somebody's saying. But I guess the suggestion that Monica, from Monica is maybe that being alert would not necessarily have a better outcome. And I think when I work with people, I try to uh, find analogies from their life, like the Boston Marathon one with mine or the dentist one with mine. Like, is it ever helpful? So really in DBT, when you're trying to get a commitment to something, you're open to the possibility that for this person, maybe it wouldn't be more helpful. So you really do the pros and cons. I don't know if this would be helpful for you to be more alert to actually what's going on in your body. I mean, when somebody would have told that to me when I was not ready for it, I would have told them to get out of there. I mean, get away from me. Don't try to tell me to go see a doctor. I don't want to see a doctor. Yeah, but don't you think if you were more alert to what's going on, it'll make things better? No, I don't. I actually think you should be quiet. I mean, there, there, you've got to realize that there's so many sides to this coin, and the, you've got to allow people to not want to be alert. I mean, I, I feel like you want to put, put it out there. You want to give great modeling. You want to give examples. If you're in a skills group, you want to have them hear other people. You want to, and, but, you know, it's all over the Internet now. It's all over movies. Uh, you can't miss this stuff. I mean, even talking about it now compared to 20 years ago sounds pretty boring just hearing myself talk because everybody talks about these kind of things now. But I, I do think you have to let somebody learn. So I can't really sell that being alert would have a better outcome. Um, I think it does, but not if you're not ready to do it. It's sort of like asking someone to forgive their abuser or to forgive somebody that they think has really done them wrong. There's times when you're not ready to forgive people. Uh, just like there's times you're not ready to be alert to the reality of what's going on. Um, somebody wrote, I definitely appreciate the metaphor of a surfer ready to notice waves. You know, Daryl, I found that um, I've always known the urge surfing idea in teaching substance abuse skills in DBT as mindfulness with substance abuse. But actually, until I started reading it in relapse prevention and realizing, no, people take this really is a much bigger metaphor. I, I find that helpful. It's just one of many ways to say, you know, it's good to know that, you know, something's coming that could sweep you off your feet. Then you can cope ahead. And I think that's what works with mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is you, you start to see, oh, I'm seeing the early signs of a wave of negative emotion and negative thinking. Now I can cope ahead. What am I going to do about this? You get kind of freaked out and you're worried about it. But actually, the earlier you catch it, 
the more you can sort of stay on your feet when it comes. And somebody wrote, as you said, being quiet or alert is, oh, Monica's responding, is often interpreted as being passive. Exactly. That's one of the biggest myths about mindfulness. You know, you got to find books, and there are books out there about people who are warriors because of mindfulness. Because this idea, you know, one of the first places it was helpful to me, I worked with, you know, teenagers that were athletic, and I would have trouble getting them to actually think it was useful. I didn't have as much flexibility then. I don't think my grasp was as deep of what mindfulness is. So I was trying to get them to do adult-like sitting mindfulness. And they were like, give me a break, man. I mean, yeah, okay, I'll sit here. All right, everybody just sit here. And they would make fun of it and they'd be willful and they would sit on their hands. And, and I would feel like an idiot trying to, to get them to team. And then I came across the book, um, you know, of course, being a basketball freak um, by Phil Jackson. Uh, called uh, Sacred Hoops about coaching Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman and these people on the Chicago Bulls to win championships and having them practice mindfulness before games and mindfulness before sessions and how much they just gave him shit about it and how actually they started to take hold of it and it started to work. And he also introduced an offense with the Chicago Bulls, separate point, found an interesting, but not, not exactly mindfulness, but it, needed mindfulness to do what's what was then called the triangle offense, which is now used everywhere, uh, which allows for a lot more improvisation on the basketball court than the, than the old two, one, two lineups they used to have when I was growing up. Um, yeah. So being quiet, being still, uh, being courageous enough to, t to look at your experience, being courageous enough to have a conversation. I had a patient that had a conversation with her father recently about things that happened decades ago that she's never said. And she now felt like, you know, she keeps avoiding him, avoiding, avoiding, avoiding. And she wanted to talk to him and she got ready. And oh my God, was it a knockout? She was so ready. She just said all these things and he did not know what to say. And, and I tried to help him have a constructive response rather than just get defensive. And I think it was a really, it was a good thing. And to me, that was mindfulness, is that she woke up to what happened in her life and what some of her symptomatology was related to. And she woke up to the fact that she never talked to him because she was trying to control her reactions around him. She was restricting. Actually, she was restricting in a number of ways. She was refusing to talk to him. She was avoiding him. She was escaping from the emotion. She was suppressing the whole thing. But as a rebound, like trauma, like PTSD, it just kept bouncing back into her experience. So, yeah. So, guys, thank you um, for listening. Send me emails or whatever if uh, that might help me get some input about how this worked. Um, next week, literally next week, we'll be going over um, actually moving into DBT's use of mindfulness practices and how to t what they exactly are and how to make it really practical building on what we talked about today. We, the, the, the royal we. I mean, what I talked about today and what some of you, I hope, really took in. So thank you for taking part in this new venture with me. Feel free to let patients and everybody else know that if, if you think that these things would be useful for them because some people just don't have another way to get stuff like this. Okay? All right. Adios, amigos. Ciao. Um, how do you get out of this? Never know with these things.
Oh yeah, leave leave meeting is a good guess. <laughs>